Welcome back everybody to the Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Wednesday. We have lots of news to discuss. Let's go ahead and jump into our first story. Hurricane Ian is about to make landfall um, on the coast of Florida. So when you watch this, because it just takes a second to record and then actually get the content out to you guys, likely it will have already made landfall and you'll already kind of know the preliminary outcome of all of that. But it seems like it could be very, very devastating. That's the expectation. It's nearing a Category 5 hurricane. It's still Category 4, but it's nearing Category 5, which again could be devastating. So because this is a political show, we're going to discuss political elements of this, a Fox News host um, making a completely incoherent, dumb, and uh, bizarre argument in relation to this, as well as Ron DeSantis actually giving some credit to Joe Biden at this point in time. So quickly, though, as an update, USA Today, Hurricane Ian on uh, brink of Category 5 status as it nears Florida landfall within hours. Floodwaters race down streets and into yards along Florida's southwest coast Wednesday as heavy rains and high winds from powerful Hurricane Ian blasting 155 mile per hour winds roared closer to landfall expected within hours. So again, that may have already happened <clears throat> whenever you're watching or listening to this. But then here's Jesse Waters taking this opportunity on Fox News to make a truly incorrect point, dumb point. I have no other way to describe it than that. I know that's not the most intellectual term, but uh, that's the, the one that comes to my mind in relation to this hurricane about Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Take a look. Florida's in a state of emergency tonight as it frantically hunters down before Hurricane Ian makes landfall. And the storm's a big deal. So did Joe Biden call Ron DeSantis to get on the same page? He's made conversations with the mayors. So is there any reason why not the governor? Again, we have a strong team that's in place supporting the governor right now, working side by side with him and his staff. We'll continue to stay engaged with him. Maybe the reason Joe isn't talking with the leader of the state that's about to be devastated by this natural disaster is because he's already got the whole thing covered with the Inflation Reduction Act. Senator Amy Klobuchar laid it out for us clearly. There's no need to worry, people, because the Inflation Reduction Act and voting for Democrats is going to stop hurricanes. Listen. We just did something about climate change for the first time in decades. That's why we've got to win this as that hurricane bears down on Florida. We got to win in the midterms. We understand that. Is it just me or is Amy saying if you vote Democrat, she'll drive to Florida and nuke the hurricane herself? Just asking. Uh, so fun and playful there from Jesse Waters. So what is the point that he's trying to make? Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, they said that it's going to affect climate change, hopefully in a positive direction, and we're still seeing hurricanes, so it probably didn't work. No. Okay. The Inflation Reduction Act and any action you're trying to take on climate change, part of the consideration for that is to hopefully uh, diminish the effects of climate change in the extreme weather department, right? So one of the things that happens when you have this level of climate change is that your extreme weather events become more frequent. And that's what we've seen. We've seen the frequency of these once in a 100 year events happening way more often. And we've seen, um, worse disasters likely because of, and you know, science tells us because of, um, climate change. So yes, investing in climate change responses 
investing in trying to lower our carbon emissions and all of those things is actually an effort to prevent so many of these extreme weather events. Now, as is always said and is absolutely true, you can't say that uh, some level of action on climate change would necessarily have prevented a particular extreme weather event. That's impossible to know. But you know that it'll decrease the likelihood that so many of them happen. Um, that may be too complicated for Jesse Waters to understand. I don't know. But it's funny because he made the critique about Biden not calling uh, Ron DeSantis. Well, I'm sure when he said that, that was true. Since this clip came out, uh, Biden has called Ron DeSantis. And here is DeSantis getting asked about that um, and actually responding in a more positive way than I would have expected. Let's talk about you had a conversation with the president today. Earlier in the day, there had been talk that the president spoke with mayors, but not you. Uh, but apparently the president reached out to you tonight. Can you tell us about that conversation? And in the aftermath of the storm, what what support Flor Floridians can expect from the federal government? Well, Sean, you know, what I said today is, uh, you know, my, my phone line's open. When people's lives and their property are at risk like this, you know, we all need to work together regardless of party lines. Uh, the Biden administration has approved our request for a pre-landfall declaration and did that very quickly. So, so we're thankful for that. You know, obviously, as this, the impacts are known, uh, you know, there's going to be more requests, particularly uh, for individual assistance for Floridians that may have been displaced. You know, and it's my sense that the administration you know, wants to help. I think they realize that this is a really significant storm uh, and there's a lot of people that, you know, we're working with the locals. We work very well with them, of course, at the state level, uh, but we really need everyone working together to make sure people uh, have their needs tended to. Absolutely. So that is, um, shockingly, from Ron DeSantis, a very, very reasonable response. And I think no matter how uh, generally politicized someone is or vile even their politics uh, are when it comes to a situation like this, most people will set that aside. And I think DeSantis sees, listen, I'm not going to take this as an opportunity to go after Biden, pretend he said things he didn't or didn't say things he should have or all those things. He's giving us the federal government support. That's what we need. And that's what, you know, uh, I'm going to leave it at. Right. There's no reason to create a public political feud between the president and the governor in the middle of a crisis like this. So Jesse Waters just being completely incoherent with his point. DeSantis uh, doing what he, he should at this moment in time. And we are absolutely thinking of the people of Florida and whoever else this could end up affecting. And hopefully it is not as disastrous as it seems like it could be. Maggie Haberman just keeps dropping bomb after bomb on the public with all of the reporting um, that she has been doing. So she's releasing this book that's coming out uh, very soon. I think this upcoming Tuesday. And there's very few Trump tell-all books that I'm interested in because so often it's people who are within the administration trying to cash out on that now um, when they never spoke out against Trump when it mattered, right? So often they wait till two years or something after it was relevant and then they say oh i know all these horrible things about trump yeah we could have known that uh earlier that would have been helpful but maggie haberman a journalist has been clearly working her tail off to get all this information because it is quite extensive and so uh because the book is about to come out different media outlets got their hand on it hands on it and more revelations are coming we've talked about previously some of the things that she outlines in this book 
that have been, um, you know, released already. And now there's a few more that are just incredible. Uh, so the Washington Post does a piece on this that I'll put in the description, but, uh, we just have some highlights to look at put together by Mediate. And the first is that, um, <laughs> Trump apparently, according again to all of this is according to Maggie Haberman's reporting. So this isn't necessarily 100% proven or anything like that, but it's the reporting she got from people around Trump. And um, apparently, Trump wanted to fire his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his daughter, Ivanka Trump, over a tweet, over Twitter. Um, so firing by tweet was not an unprecedented uh, practice during the Trump administration, but according to Haberman, it nearly happened to Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. And this is an excerpt from the book. In meetings uh, with the White House chief of staff, Trump gave instructions to essentially fire the pair. Again, referring to uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Kelly and McGon resisted, expressing their fear that he would not back them once his daughter and son-in-law pushed back. At one point, Trump was about to write on Twitter that his daughter and son-in-law were leaving the White House. <laughs> That's without talking to them is too good kelly stopped him saying trump had to talk to them directly before doing so trump agreed then never follow uh followed up with the conversation so i don't know what that was in relation to that's not outlined uh why necessarily he felt like firing them at that moment but there have been a few times where uh reporting revealed that the two of them were not quite on board or were trying to push back against trump on something and likely it was one of those uh, one of those times. And then this was less funny, very brutal, um, and just shows the lack of character that Trump has. Trump regularly mocked Ruth Bader Ginsburg's failing health. Prior to her passing in 2020, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a frequent target of Trump mockery. Confidence man describes instances where the former president would sarcastically clasp his hands in prayer and say, please God, please watch over her. Oh my God. Every life is precious. He would then ask an aide, how much longer do you think she has? So uh, some insensitivity there, but nothing surprising on that front. And then Trump's former chief of staff clearly had no use for him, is what Mediate says here. And we'll read about this, but this is following in line with so many of these people who were close to Trump, and it comes out that privately, they absolutely despised him. They defended him on television. They worked for him. They attempted to accomplish the things that he wanted to accomplish. And they hated him. And they thought he was a bozo, right? And it shows you there's no moral backbone there. They have no sets of principles that they stick to. It's wild. So, uh, now reading, John Kelly behind the scenes frequently expressed nothing sort of searing contempt for his former boss. Haberman reports that Kelly called Trump a fascist. But let's just pause there. The chief of staff of Donald Trump repeatedly called Trump a fascist and then continued to work for him. You are the chief of staff of someone you believe to be a fascist. What are you doing with your life? That is so brutal. Um, who was unfit for office? And CNN described an incident from, uh, incident, incident from the book in which Kelly confided in former chief economic advisor Gary Cohen. Following the 2017 white supremacist march in Charlottesville, this is reading uh, another expert, Virginia, when Trump claimed there was good people on both sides, Trump's then chief economic advisor, 
Gary Cohen, prepared a letter of resignation. Trump appealed for Cohen to stay. If you leave, you're committing treason, Trump said, according to Haberman. Um, or this may be a CNN uh, report about the book expert. Cohen agreed to stay through the administration's efforts to pass its signature tax overhaul later that year. As Cohen left the Oval Office, Kelly whispered to him, if I were you, I'd have shoved that paper up his effing ass, Haberman writes. Wow. Guys, all of these people despise Trump, and then they work for him, they enable him, and they defend him to no end. It's incredible. Uh, Trump, this is not surprising at all, had absolutely no idea how Congress works. One passage of the CNN preview shows an alarming lack of knowledge from Trump about how Congress functions. The former president even talked about uh, filing a lawsuit against Congress ahead of his first impeachment in 2019. The book shows Trump's failure to grasp basic policy concepts, such as Trump suggesting in an interview with Haberman that the Senate's minority uh, party could block legislation by skipping votes. The vice president's vote doesn't count. It doesn't count. You might want to check this, Trump said. When the House introduced articles of impeachment against Trump for the first time in 2019, Trump reacted with a uh, familiar refrain, refrain, excuse me, according to the book, I'll just sue Congress. They can't do this to me. And this is something that we've seen throughout Trump's entire uh, career in real estate as well. That's his response. Whenever someone, uh, you know, is posing some sort of threat to him, he either sues them or he gets tied up in a legal batter, battle that's indefinite so that they can't actually hold him accountable or uh, continue opposing him in some way. Finally, and this one is the least, I would say, journalistically secure as far as me knowing that this actually happened. But I'll give you the information with that caveat. In a truly stunning anecdote, Haberman described how former Representative Debbie Dingell believes Trump may have tried to pass himself off as a Washington Post reporter in a phone call to her uh, on, a, on one occasion. This is reading from the Washington Post. Haberman describes Representative Debbie Dingell getting a phone call from an unknown number. When she answered, the man on the other end identified himself as a Washington Post reporter uh, and said he knew her husband from his investigation in Congress. The name he gave was not one she recognized. The man asked Dingle if she was looking for an apology from Trump. No, she replied, merely uh, that people could be civil to one another. As the man talked, Dingle couldn't shake the idea that his voice sounded like the 45th president. So Dingle has the suspicion that Trump had called her and pretended to be a Washington Post journalist that she didn't recognize the name of, um, which is something that has been previously reported as something that Trump did in his real estate days, would call up uh, people and talk himself up to journalists and say, you should write this. That's been a previously reported thing. So it could have happened. Again, that's just a suspicion from a representative that Haberman's reporting on. So this is not necessarily as, uh, you know, I would say likely to have happened as some of the other things. But it totally could be something that uh, Trump would have done. So there we go. More insights into Trump behind the scenes, how much of a mess he is. And probably most profound to me from those particular revelations we just went through um, is the John Kelly one and the close, you know, chief of staff individual hating Trump's guts and how that is just such a common trend. And to me, that doesn't reflect poorly on Trump as much as it reflects poorly on the individuals who stick by his side, despite that, who don't speak out against him until sometimes years later. 
Obviously, it also reflects poorly on Trump himself, but these people have no principles. They have no moral uh, backbone. And that's what allows them to enable, support, and work for Donald Trump while they're behind the scenes saying he might be a fascist. Wild stuff. Mike uh, Fanone was a D.C. police officer on January 6th, got assaulted, and has kind of done a lot of public appearances speaking out against the rioters, speaking out against the um, event that took place on that day. And he went into court recently to give the victim testimony about um, one of the individuals who assaulted him. And during that, a heated confrontation happened. Um, so we're going to show you this being announced by someone um, on Twitter. And then Michael Fanone kind of speaking to Don Lemon about this um, and speaking to CNN in a different moment about what he feels like the punishment should be for the people who assaulted him. So first, uh, new, a January 6th supporter just called Michael Fanone a piece of poop inside the courtroom. It came after Fanone told defendant Kyle Young during his victim statement that he hoped Young uh, suffers in prison. There was a brief stare down and the man has now been escorted from court. Um, so there we go, calling him a piece of you know what. I've gotten people asking why I do that. I don't know. I just decided one time this show was going to be mm, super clean language wise. So I always do that. But you can you can fill in the gaps. And then here is him going on uh, Don Lemon's show and getting emotional responding to all of this. A lot of people in this country that would rather put... And this is after that courtroom exchange between him and the uh, person who he was testifying against. What happened on January 6th and, and what happened with the previous administration in the rearview mirror um, without addressing some of the root causes of, you know... Uh, of that day and, and of that event. Um, I mean, I think that there's, there's a lot of different factors that, that lead people to continue to support Donald Trump. Um, but I think that, um, I, I, and I, I don't know. I think that, um, Yeah, I'm sorry, Don. I, I you got me there, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll let you go. You all right? <sighs> yeah, I, I just um, it's hard to uh, focus in on. It's hard to focus on the bigger picture when you know, like. What, what happened today is not just um, like an isolated incident. It's it's become my new reality. It's every single day of my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. So, of course, because he came out and spoke against these individuals uh, and talked about the experience of being assaulted on January 6th, he has uh, received so much negative attacks um or negative attention from the right and thus attacks and then here is him on cnn talking about what he feels like is the reasonable uh sentence and reasonable response to what they did to him 
I want to ask you about Kyle Young, who is one of the people who assaulted you on January 6th. He's actually being sentenced today. And prosecutors are asking at this point for a sentence of more than seven years in prison. What do you think he deserves? What do you want to see? Um, well, I'll say this before the trial, and I, the guy's name escapes me. He was a former NYPD officer who was sentenced to 10 years. The time in and of itself really didn't matter to me. Um, what did matter to me was what Mr. Young did with that time. Uh, and like all the individuals who've been charged with assaulting me, uh, the only thing that I'm interested in seeing them do is suffer. Um, I'm not looking for apologies. Uh, I'm not looking for them to turn their lives around. If, if they want to do that, they can do that. That's fine. Uh, but I want them to suffer just like I have, just like a lot of police officers have. Um, to me, that that's what accountability is. Now, having heard that that individual, that NYPD officer was sentenced to 10 years in prison, I think that that's a um, reasonable amount of time. for. OK, um, so 10 years is a significant amount of time. Um, and his focus is on them suffering, which I mean. You understand the anger, but that's definitely um, real stuff. So then here is uh, a phone call he received after that courtroom interaction um, where, you know, he says that he wants the defendant to suffer in prison and then the defendant yells out at him. Um, and here's a phone call he received from someone that he actually picked up. And the person all obviously says he wished that Michael Fanon would die. Hello. This is Michael Fanone? Yeah. Uh, the Capitol uh, Hill cop? Well, not a Capitol Hill cop. I was a D.C. police officer. All right. You're a complete sack of And the world would be a better place if you were hit by a fast-moving bus tomorrow. Anything else? That's it, pal. Come on, dude. You got to do better than that. Go f*** yourself, you sack of and <laughs> um so obviously he handled it in a somewhat comedic way but you can see anyone who just comes out and speaks about their experiences getting assaulted on january 6th and then going to court and trying to hold people accountable for it get that type of response uh from people i guess who support trump or support the january 6th rioters that's kind of synonymous um it's really incredible and you can you, you hear all of these experiences from different people who have spoken out um, or were in the center of all of this, uh, you know, drama is the wrong word for it, but all of this kind of devastation. And then they get even more of it afterwards from people who for some reason think it's justified to call and threaten um, and wish for the death of a police officer who got assaulted trying to defend the Capitol. Really? We're pro-law enforcement? Republicans, and I, I don't say we as in we, I'm saying y'all are pro-law enforcement, really? That's what I kept hearing my entire life. Republicans, you know, back the blue, we're pro-law enforcement, and now we're hating on a police officer for defending the Capitol? Wild stuff, um, and lots of credit to Michael Fanone for speaking out and being brave, putting his face out there. Gavin Newsom has gotten a lot of attention recently for repeatedly speaking much more aggressively than you see most Democrats speak, uh, 
against the Republican Party, against the right wing. And it's one of the things we talk about a lot where the Democratic Party and individuals uh, kind of in that orbit just seem to be so weak in their rhetoric compared to the right. And it's like, I don't want you to become the right at all. I don't want you to stoop to their lows. But you do have to fight with the same level of, obviously, politically fight with the same level of passion and um, aggression uh, as long as you're not dipping into that violent rhetoric realm, of course. But as far as politics goes, you should push just as aggressively against them as they do to you. Um, but they don't do that. The Democratic Party oftentimes wears the, their, their kid gloves and it's really upsetting to see. But Gavin Newsom is stepping up recently. Maybe it's because he's trying to get attention for a presidential run, whatever it is, but I like it. And actually doing what I've wished more of these Democrats would do, which is speak accurately, um, precisely, and aggressively against the current Republican uh, Party at least specifically the MAGA part of it. So here's him getting asked um, about why are they going kind of in this authoritarian direction? And he has a really good response. Why the desire to have these strong men? It is it a desire for autocracy? Bill Clinton said it decades ago, right, when we got shellacked to one of the midterms, said given the choice, the American people always support strong and wrong versus weak and right. And there was truth then about that. There's truth today about that. This esper demonization has political benefits. It worked. It works situationally. And that's that's what's so sad. But now it's weaponized at a whole nother level with this feedback loop of social media. And then, of course, the propaganda networks and the anger machine, which, of course, the right dominates. And we have nothing, respectfully, nothing comparable. My awakening in all this is it's not just about midterms in Congress or 2024, Biden will, Biden won't. It's deeper than that. The rights revolution, what we've taken for granted the last 50 years, is being wiped out in real time, state after state, and they have intention. They're focused. And they will stop at nothing to achieve their goals of rolling back all of these rights, and they're doing it successfully. They are. I mean, we saw, you know, Roe v. Wade as the biggest, most recent example uh, where they were successful. They won on that issue of revoking um, that right on a federal level. And it's incredible, something they've been working towards a long time. And I think we got complacent and they were able to succeed on that. But one of the issues, so first, just to say, absolutely correct. I love how uh, clearly he puts that. You don't hear too many Democrats talk about that intentional and aggressive effort by the right state by state to revoke uh, rights. But the other interesting part about this that I wanted to highlight was he talks about the difference between right-wing media and kind of the right-wing propaganda machine and quote-unquote left-wing media, which I don't even think there's something that fits in that box. There's sort of liberal media, you know. I would say definitely that MSNBC has a liberal slant and um, CNN doesn't like Trump, but does actually support a lot of Republican viewpoints they bring on and, and share with people. But uh, it's nothing compared to the Fox News machine, as well as the OAN, the Newsmaxes, all of the YouTube shows that are following that same narrative and seem to be just concisely coordinated with one another. Um, I'm not saying there's some conspiracy, obviously. I'm just saying that they do watch one another, chat with one another so that they have a similar message. And when something comes down 
from Fox News or from uh, Donald Trump. You start hearing it everywhere on all these different uh, shows because they're fighting for the same mission, it seems, right? So it makes sense to them to share and support the same narratives. On the left side, it is nothing like that. Yeah, maybe they'll be clear that Trump's bad or they'll say the election wasn't stolen or whatever it is. But it's not a propaganda machine like that. And they bring on progressives all the time and tear them in half. And um, it's a huge, huge difference, not even comparable. And that's part of the reason that you see the right, even though it does not represent the majority of the country, be so successful in politics still. Because people's media is largely everything in politics, where they're getting their information from, right? That's how you know what the world is for most people who don't go to any other um, places to find that information. Whatever shows they're watching, that's what crafts their understanding of the world. And so with that comes a very disproportionate effect between the dogmatic support of the left versus the dogmatic support of the right. And there's so many people who have that dogmatic, almost cult-like support of Trump and the media that they tune into, um, whereas the left still media, which I think is respectable, tries to give kind of a, but here's what the other side's saying, and here, you know, um, we're also going to challenge those on our own side. And if you've ever been in progressive spaces, tearing each other apart all of the time, and everyone's not good enough, and all that type of stuff. And so, What's my prescription on this? Do I think that the left should create or transform our media to be the same thing? No, I don't want a dishonest, lying media like the right has. But I do think um, some level of understanding that it's okay to be clear with your bias, kind of like what I try to do on this show, lay out the facts, but then make clear what is being fought for. And I think if you're in the commentary world, that is the best thing you can do. Now, if you're trying to be like a straight news show um, and just giving the the day-to-day breakdown of what's going on, that's a different thing. But if you're giving a commentary, which most shows are, just be clear. Here, this is what I stand for. And this is the importance of the message I'm putting out there. And then here's all the facts that you can take and interpret in your own way. Um and don't both sides everything. Don't try to stay completely neutral. Uh, you can be objective without being neutral. You can be honest without um, actually dishonestly giving a portrayal of the world that makes both sides look equal and all of those things. So that could be a change. And it seems like Newsom is highlighting that. There's nothing even close to the team sport nature of the media and politician world on the right. And it seems like Hillary Clinton in a recent interview was highlighting the same thing. She said there's an element of this which is quite frustrating because they get away with it. The so-called mainstream media, even though the so-called progressive media is just not as relentless in rebuting, refuting, uh, sorry, rebutting, refuting, and making clear that this is nothing but a play for profits at the cost of truth. Um, and so she's highlighting that as well. It might have mattered if one of the other networks for 10 days said, do you know one of the very first people to get vaccinated in the UK in December of 2020 was Rupert Murdoch? Did you know that Fox News requires all of their employees to be vaccinated? So she's giving a specific example of if super, uh, I use the word again, kind of 
maybe not to use that dogmatically again, because that's not really applicable, but in a regimented fashion, the left every day on all the shows you were hearing, did you know Rupert Murdoch got vaccinated? Uh, he was the first one in the UK is what she's saying. I've not fact checked that, but, um, was early. We know that. And Fox News employees have to get vaccinated, but then hosts on their program are saying, you know, oh, the vaccines, this horrible plot to whatever, whatever. And the vaccine might be dangerous. And Tucker Carlson spreading all that dangerous information, misinformation, disinformation. That is not something you would see in progressive media where every single show is repeating the line, Fox News employees are vaccinated. Fox News, Rupert Murdoch got vaccinated super early so that the right wingers go, wait, wait, why are my news hosts telling me something that goes against their own personal decision? Doesn't make any sense, right? And um, so there's Hillary Clinton kind of with a similar message as Gavin Newsom. Very interesting. Uh, again, I'm not super clear on what the prescription is here, right? Like, what is it that we want progressive media to be? More aggressive on narratives, maybe, while keeping it honest? Um, because you don't want us to become right-wing media, but you also want us to be somewhat more on an even playing field, um, kind of in this political clash that's going on. Congress is attempting to pass the uh, Electoral Reform Act. And just to make sure I got that term correct, the Electoral Count Reform and Presidential Transition Improvement Act. Okay, so what it's attempting to do a bad is, um, apologies, is change in minor ways the in-law breakdown of what's supposed to happen within the House and Senate after the presidential election. Because we saw Donald Trump took the chance uh, after the 2020 election in every different area to try to cast enough doubt and challenge the system enough to stay in power, right? And so one of the ways he did that was come up with this weird plot uh, with the advice of a bizarre lawyer, as was outlined in the January 6th committee, to... Um, challenge the electoral vote counts within different states, have Vice President Pence possibly recognize other electors that weren't the actual electors, but pretend they were, so that Trump could have a justification to stay in power. So, uh, reasonably, Democrats and Republicans are going to change it a little bit and put in law what's supposed to happen with that electoral count process. Because it's one of those situations where... There was some ambiguity there, but it was understood based on all of the constitutional precedent as well as just the constitutional text that there would be no intention under anyone's interpretation of our constitution that a vice president should have the ability to reject the election results. But as is the case with so many of these uh, institutional norms, it's not necessarily written perfectly laid out. Hey, if you're a buffoonish president, don't try to overturn an election because you lost and you were a baby and you didn't want to get it, right? <laughs> it's not going to be perfectly laid out every single possible, possible thing. If you've ever read the Constitution, it's not that long. So obviously every hypothetical is not going to be put in there. Um, but it's a given that based on the text that is there, the assumption should be no, you can't 
uh, attempt to stay in power when you lose, right? Um, but they're like, wow, clearly this had never happened before because every president went along with that. But clearly we need to put it even more explicitly in law to make sure someone like Trump doesn't come along and try to do this again. Well, Ted Cruz disagrees. Um, and interestingly enough, actually McConnell is very pro this bill, um, as well as many other Republicans. But Ted Cruz speaking out against it. I'll show you a little bit of this and then we'll discuss further. Bad policy and it's bad bill. This bill is bad law, it's bad policy, and it's bad for democracy. There are serious constitutional questions in the bill. The text of the Constitution, Article 2, says each state shall appoint in such matter as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. This bill is Congress trying to intrude on the authority of the state legislatures to do that. No. But it's also exceptionally bad policy. Unfortunately, I understand why Democrats in this body. Okay, then he goes on to say it's an, about an obsession with Trump and blah de blah de blah. Um, but as I mentioned, and then we'll get to a summary from actual uh, Congress about what this is about. But Mitch McConnell's on board uh, reading from CBS. McConnell says he supports Senate's electoral count reform bill. Senate majority uh, that is not correct. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday announced he'll proudly support bipartisan legislation in the Senate to reform the Electoral Count Act, a move intended to prevent a recurrence of the events of January 6, 2021. That is hilarious. They put Majority Leader. Um, so the most powerful Republican in the Senate is on board with this piece of legislation, which means likely the caucus will go along with it, um, which is good, minus Ted Cruz and likely a few others who are going to pretend like this is an attempt by the Democratic Party to go after Trump or something. But regardless of if you think, yeah, it was sparked by Trump's actions. And so in that sense, it is a response to Trump. You should stand for what this bill actually outlines. So I wanted to actually pull this up on the show because I noticed in personal conversations, people aren't aware of this and they think there's some secret thing the specifics of bills, you can go onto congress.gov um, and get information about things that are being proposed and attempted to be passed and all that type of stuff. And here's just the summary that they put out about this bill. And it pretty much outlines that the rules aren't being changed. They're being put into law. What was already the process is now being put into law and making sure that it is clearly and undeniably written into our laws that um, someone can't do what Trump attempted to do, right? So that's good. Um, this is not trying to hurt Republicans unless you want to admit as a Republican that you want to try to stay in power when you lose elections. It's just to say, once election results are decided, the process that's already set up, that's not being changed, they need to uh, take those results and follow them. Take those results and uh, make that the reality of who's president. Um, which is obviously what should be the case all the time. Marjorie Taylor Greene put out an ad, and I think other than it being cringy, it reveals uh, what we've already known for a very long time, which is these people are not promoting themselves as policymakers or lawmakers or attempting to materially improve your life. It's just a fun public show of we hate the left and we're cool and 
we're badasses and we shoot guns and all those things, right? And so I'm going to show you this ad that she is running of her hog hunting, okay? And there's nothing here. She talks about how we need to help the farmers. Doesn't say anything about how that's supposed to happen, but does show herself shooting hogs. And I really think there are voters who are going to love this and not even realize that you're voting for someone who's supposed to make laws for you, who's supposed to improve your life through the power they have to do that. And all they're giving you is a fun action uh, film of them shooting hogs. Take a look. We've got skyrocketing inflation, high diesel fuel, and Democrats' America last policies. Okay, so what are you proposing to decrease inflation, to decrease uh, oil and gas costs, and to put America first? What are you actually proposing from a specific policy perspective? Nothing. Democrats aren't the only one destroying farmers' ability to put food on the table. We've got wild hogs destroying farmers' fields. So we decided to go hog hunting. Let's help American farmers out. Sign up below and let's go in that helicopter and go hog hunting. Enter to win now. And then it ends on a slide that says, save America, stop communism. <clears throat> Excuse me, guys. Still getting over whatever the weird uh, stuff I got going on. But that is what they're advertising to the voters. Save America, stop communism. Who's pushing communism within the Democratic Party? Question mark. Not sure. Who uh, is... <laughs> just kidding who's preventing you from going hog hunting <laughs> nobody no but what are you proposing to improve these farmers lives besides you know raffling off a hog hunting expedition with mtg which as a side note can you imagine can you imagine yourself going around <laughs> in a hel helicopter and shooting hogs with marjorie taylor green that would be a day and a half ladies and gentlemen that would be insane um but I do think, I've tried in my personal life, it fails, but I do think one of the messages that Democrats and liberals, you know, people on the left need to repeatedly put out there is, I beg you if you're on the right to pay attention to how often your politicians and your media figures are proposing actual real world tangible material change that could happen and how often are they patronizing you by making themselves out to be action figures and memeing a bunch on Twitter and going after people on the left. How often are they doing either of those things? Because I see 99% and 1%. And there is some place for the public, you know, political stunts. There's some place for the going after the other side and even comedic ways. Of course, fair enough. But how often are they talking about ways they're actually going to improve their life? And then whenever they criticize uh, people that you don't like, is it followed up with the way in which they would do that better? Okay, so for example, I hear the criticism about, excuse me, um, ooh, inflation time after time from people on the right. What percentage of the time within all those criticisms do I hear them follow it up with? And here's what I'm proposing 
to slow down inflation. Occasionally, they'll vaguely allude to the fact that the government has spent too much under Biden and that's what's caused inflation, which of course we understand is silly. The cause of the inflation we're seeing now is much of the pandemic response that happened during the peak of the pandemic. Who was president during the peak of the pandemic? Donald Trump. Um, so absolutely so much money was spent during that time, which I think it had to be, but you should blame Trump if you actually think that just the government spending was um, the the effect of inflation. We know there's a lot of other factors as well. Um, but they don't propose how they're going to slow it down. And then same thing with gas prices, same thing with all of these things. You don't want someone who can just repeat problems that you already know exist, right? That's something I think people need to understand. Just because Marjorie Taylor Greene is able to say the words, hey, this is a problem in the country, and you see it as a problem, doesn't mean that she has the ability to fix the problem. You need to hear the uh, identification of the problem, and then, just as if not more importantly, the identification of the solution that she's proposing, which you will never hear from someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Instead, again, she will patronize you by putting out an ad showing her shooting hogs and saying, I'm going to stop communism. Okay. Rudy Giuliani was uh, chatting with Steve Bannon and said something that is not surprising, but does highlight the change in American politics as we know it that we're watching right now. So in this, he says, you know, if X, Y, and Z happens, the Democrats are preparing to cheat in the midterms. And we've heard this from so many people that, oh, the Democrats are going to steal the midterms if they win, or, uh, oh, in my particular race, if I lose, it's going to be because the Democrats stole it from me. Or even some of these bozos were saying, hey, if my Republican primary gets stolen from me, it's the Republican Party stealing it. Okay, whatever. It's stolen if you lose is the new way based on themselves, uh, these people trying to, uh, you know, model themselves after Donald Trump. Trump said that statement, now they all do it. If I lose in my race, it's because it was stolen. And if the Democrats win in the House or they win in the Senate, it's because they stole it. So here's this moment, and then I want to look at a truly shocking, um, shocking and not shocking. Shocking from the point of view of reason, not shocking because I think we knew this existed in our country already, but it's a shocking poll about the reality of some people's views in our country. Take a look. Make sure that the state Democratic Party is not making use of, I mean, what's what's the biggest one? The the mail-in voting and no ability of Republicans to observe those ballots. If that's the case, if there's going to be no ability to observe, they're getting ready to cheat. If that's the way they did it before. Okay. They're getting ready to cheat. Um, And no, that's not what they did before. But then here is this poll that recently came out um, from a study that was done from the University of Chicago. And this is scary stuff. So uh, reading from CBS, more than 18 months after the rioting at the U.S. Capitol by a pro-Trump mob, an estimated 13 million U.S. adults or 5% of the adult population, which would be much more of the Republican population, agree that force would be justified to restore former President Donald Trump to the White House, and an estimated 15 million Americans believe force would be justified to prevent Trump from being prosecuted should he be indicted for mishandling classified documents. Guys, 15 million Americans. 
think it's justified to use force to prevent Trump from being prosecuted. And 13 million believe uh, force would be justified to restore Trump as president. And by force, we're talking about violence. People see out of their eyes, a lot of these voters, what Rudy Giuliani said, which is they're preparing to steal the midterms. And they also hold the belief in their heart and in their mind that it's justified to use violence uh, to put Trump back in power and to prevent the stealing of the election, which of course isn't going to happen. And this is why if you're someone in right-wing media, if you're someone who's conservative and you have some sort of public voice and you know in your heart of hearts, the election wasn't stolen, but you know that your audience wants to hear that, which we understand is a lot of these people. And you're riling them up to believe that all these elections are being stolen, that Trump's uh, the rightful president and all that type of stuff. You're setting up a situation where we get closer and closer to inevitable violence. That is where we are headed towards, guys. Because of the lies that are being told. To the point where 15 million Americans believe force will be justified to prevent Trump from being indicted. There's a legal, uh, lawful, correct, rightful investigation going on into Trump. All of the correct processes have been gone through to do this in a correct way. And they still believe that if he gets indicted, they should use violence to prevent him from being held accountable in that way. And 13 million people, 5% of the entire population, uh, you put a group of 20 people together and one of them will believe that they should use violence to put Trump back in power or it would be justified to do so. That is incredible. That is scary. That is dangerous. And people like Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, and all these other individuals are perpetuating the lies that are going to get someone hurt that already have on January 6th. But could in a much larger fashion do so because of the cult that has developed around Donald Trump. It is so, so scary. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. I will see you tomorrow.